Tonight we continue our study of the epistle of James, and in chapter 4, where we have been for the last two lessons, we have dealt with a particular issue with which James deals, and that is the problems of life, the source of spiritual strife, worldliness, the source of spiritual strife, lust, the lust of the flesh, and the problem itself is sin. In verses 6 through 10, at which we will look tonight, James discusses the solution to spiritual strife. And that solution, simply stated, is submission to God. The solution to spiritual strife is submission to God. Let's look at these verses and read them and then discuss them. But he gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In verse 6, he speaks of grace, and we're going to talk about grace in just a moment. But in these verses that we have just read, he specifies that there are four things, four things involved in this act of submission that is the solution to spiritual strife. The solution is submission to God, but there are four things that are involved here that are absolutely crucial to that submission. One, first of all, is recognition of the true nature of sin. We have to recognize the nature of sin, and then there has to be a spiritual cleansing that flows from that recognition of the true nature of sin. And then we've got to continue to resist the devil. And all of this is undergirded with the foundational characteristic of Christianity about which we've spoken often, and that is humility. These are the four things that are involved in the solution to spiritual strife, that solution being submission. Recognizing sin and its true nature, undergoing a spiritual cleansing, resisting the devil, and maintaining a genuine humility. In verse 6 he says, but he gives more grace. Verse 5 he asked, remember last time we studied, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, jealously? You know, it's almost as though he's anticipating a question or a statement from his readers here. Well, but this is, this is our human spirit that's involved here. How can, we, how, can we, uh, how can we handle this? How can we be successful? How can we deal with these things you're telling us that uh, are, the, uh, are the source of our spiritual uh, strife and are producing these uh, things in us that you tell us uh, constitute adultery, spiritual adultery? Uh, how is it that, that we can resist this friendship with the world? How can our spirits, the human spirits, how can our spirits resist? The scripture doesn't tell us that the spirit who dwells in us, that dwells in us, yearns jealousy, jealously. How then do we deal with this? By grace. That is the foundation by which we deal with it. In other words, God gives us the ability, he gives us all that we need to be able to maintain an animosity with the world rather than a friendship with the world and to maintain that separation, that separateness that we need and to undergo the proper submission. 
there are at least five thoughts in this one phrase, that phrase, but he gives more grace. Five thoughts. First of all, there's the gift, grace. The power or strength to overcome the problem of sin that he has discussed in the first five verses of this chapter. It is a grace that is freely bestowed. We're reminded of it in in, uh, Paul's writings in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where he speaks to those Christians, writes to those Christians, and reminds them, by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is the gift of God, and it comes by the grace of God. Obviously, it has to be appropriated, as we have often talked about. It has to be accepted, but the grace of God is freely bestowed. It has appeared to all men, as Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2 and verse 11. That's the first concept that we see or thought in this one phrase. The second is need. The very fact that grace was given indicates what? We need it. We need it. If God gives grace, then it implies that we need it. The recipient needs it. And who would deny that? Who would affirm that you don't need the grace of God? That you can be self-sufficient, that you don't need God's grace? You can make it on your own. Well, the humanist, the atheist, the agnostic might, but certainly not one who claims to be a follower of God. A true follower of God understands the need for grace. And the very situation here that James has addressed in the first five verses of this chapter that we have been studying demonstrates they had a need for divine help. They were in need of divine help. There were wars and fights, that is spiritually speaking. There was that desire for pleasure that wars in their members. They were lusting and not having, murdering, the figurative use of that word as we've already said. They were coveting, fighting, warring, asking, not receiving, asking amiss, etc. All sorts of problems. Obviously, they needed divine help. So, one of the five thoughts in this short but powerful phrase is the gift. The second is the need. But the third is the giver. He He gives more grace. Who is the he? God. God gives grace. He's the only source of grace. The problem of sin is solved by meeting the demands of the divine giver. Who is that divine giver? God. Another thought in this phrase is the amount. Notice, he gives more grace or greater grace. God's grace always outdistances our need. God's grace will never fall short of what we need. God's grace is always sufficient. That's what he reminded Paul about, wasn't it, about his thorn in the flesh? When he asked three times to have that thorn in the flesh removed, what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for all of us, and we must never take for granted or lose sight of how absolutely precious that grace is, how absolutely indispensable that grace is. And the fifth thought in this one phrase is the degree. He what? He gives. And it's in the present tense, continuous action is implied here. In other words, God keeps on supplying grace to the greatest degree. It never is absent. It is always available to us. It's always there to meet our needs in doing what? In submitting to God, in resisting Satan, and submitting to God. It'll be there, God's grace will, for as long as we live. It is ours to take and to appropriate and to use. 
in our ongoing battle with Satan. And that's just it. It is an ongoing battle. It's not a skirmish now and then. It's an ongoing battle. But a little bit later on, he's going to remind us that we can win battle after battle after battle until the Lord comes again if we will avail ourselves of his grace and appropriate that grace and submit to him. So five thoughts in this one phrase, the gift, grace, the need, the giver, the amount, more grace or greater grace, and the degree of it, it just keeps on being given. It keeps on being given. Therefore he says, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so there he goes back and quotes Proverbs 3, 34, an Old Testament passage that reminds us that God resists the proud, but he keeps on giving grace to the humble. And again, we're reminded of how important it is to maintain that genuine humility. But before we talk about that humility, talk about, let's think about this word resist. Think about this word proud, first of all. Who are the prideful? They're the ones who show themselves above others, looking down on others, despising others, treating them with contempt, feeling self-sufficient, having arrayed themselves against all things that pertain to God. How does God react to that kind of prideful attitude? God resists that attitude. And that word resist indicates to arrange one in battle against. It's a military term. It's a military connotation, to arrange oneself in battle against or to oppose. And the military term, in effect, says this. God, the God of heaven, literally arrays himself in opposition to the proud. He opposes them in the military sense. In other words, he goes to battle against the proud. No man can oppose God without being opposed by God. And when you set yourself in battle against God... Who wins? Who wins? God wins. The Bible has so much to say about pride in the negative sense, humility in the positive sense, from Old Testament to New, and here's another example of it. But he gives grace or extends favor to whom? To the humble. To the humble. And the word humble indicates to make low. The humble is not haughty. He knows his shortcomings. He recognizes his dependence upon God. And it's this kind of person, and only this kind of person, who's going to receive the grace of God. In other words, the reception of grace according to this passage, and the, and the scriptures are permeated with this same thought, the, recep- the reception of grace depends upon what? One's humility. In other words, this is a person, the humble person, who recognizes that he stands in need of help. He knows he is in need of help. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. In other words, be among the humble. Submit to God. And then he says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit to God. What does that involve? Does it involve simply mechanical obedience? Is that what constitutes 
submission to God? The answer is no. Now, that's not to minimize obedience. We never minimize ob obedience. Obedience is vitally important. But mechanical obedience is not submission to God. We need to examine our motives for our obedience. Why is it that we are obedient? Why is it that you're here tonight? Why are you submitting to God if you are claiming to submit to God? We need to make sure of our motives. Are we, are we motivated simply by a sense of duty or, or obligation? Certainly we need to recognize our duty that we are servants. What about expediency? Are we obeying simply because it's expedient? Uh, am I obeying to satisfy a mate, uh, to keep peace at home? Is that my reason for, uh, for obeying God, for serving God? Is it good for my business? Is that why I'm uh, uh, obeying God? Well, I trust there's no one here tonight in any of those categories, but you see the point. One may perform biblical acts of obedience and never really submit to God. That's entirely possible. It's entirely possible to go through mechanically scriptural acts and never, never really submit to God. We've talked about that before in, realm, in the realm of worship. Jesus talked about that in the realm of worship, didn't he? In that very familiar exchange with the uh, woman at the well in Samaria, he said, God is spirit, John 4, 24, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's mechanical, if you want to say so, in terms of the actions themselves. Those are important acts of obedience. Truth means certain acts of obedience in which we must be involved, but spirit involves the why of our involvement, the motivation for our involvement. God has to be worshipped in spirit, not only in truth, but also in spirit. In other words, we've got to have the right motive and the right act. It is entirely possible to have the right act and the wrong motive. And one of the most telling scriptures that demonstrates that is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now listen to verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. What is Paul saying? Well, it's in the context of these miraculous gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. And right in the middle of that, he's saying, you're clamoring for these gifts, but the gift, the possession of these miraculous gifts is not all that is involved. I need to make sure that whatever I am doing in my service to the Lord, I'm doing it for the right reason. I could give my body to be burned and lose my soul. That's a possibility. Paul says it is if I do it from improper motives. And so, real obedience, real submission involves the right act and the right motive. If one performs the right act without the right motive, he has not really obeyed God in the full sense of the word. And so, it is so important that we understand and appreciate 
as we talked about this morning, the introduction to the lesson on dancing, we said, God wants you to want to. Not just that he wants you to do it, he wants you to want to do what he wants you to do. And that's what we need to appreciate about obedience. Now notice the contrast, though, the stark contrast between verses 6 and verse and verse 7. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's the proud, the one who places himself above others, arraying himself against God. Here's the one who submits to God, the one who does not uh, place himself above others, but actually places himself under God, and therefore he's on an equal basis with others, but not feeling above them. And we need to be very careful about that kind of attitude, don't we? And make sure that we're not guilty of the kind of prejudice that characterizes some in our world today. Those with economic prejudice, those with social prejudice, those with racial prejudice have exalted themselves above others. Period. Thus, regardless of what they think, in so doing, they have not submitted to God. They have not submitted to God. You can't submit to God and look down on your fellow man. The two just do not harmonize. And that's what we need to be appreciative of and never lose sight of. Submission to God is an exercise of humility. The proud will never submit to God. The proud will feel no need for God as long as they're in that prideful state. But humility must precede submission to God. Be humble, submit to God, and enjoy the benefits of his grace. That's what James is telling us here. But resist the devil, the latter part of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? When we realize, as we've already said, that we're in a spiritual battle against Satan, we cannot compromise in that battle. But what James reminds us of is that Satan is not as brave as he would like for us to believe he is. He's not as brave as he would like for us to believe. In other words, when we meet him head on with the word of God, with prayer, with steadfastness, of faith, he will take to the hills. And that's beautifully illustrated in the temptation of our Lord, isn't it, in Matthew 4? Because Satan tempted the Christ, and the Christ defended himself. How did he defend himself? How did he resist that temptation? With the word. With the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. Therefore, what does that tell us we need to use in order to resist the temptations of Satan? That same word. Now in its final written form in fullness and the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is ours. It is our, at our disposal. It furnishes us, equips us completely for every good work. One of those works is what? Resisting the devil. We can do it. Oh, I know Peter says he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He transforms himself, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, into an angel of light. He does not come at you always head on saying, Here I am, I am Satan, 
I want you to know clearly who I am. He comes into pulpits under false pretenses, in false teachers, in and out of the body of Christ. But he can be resisted. He can be set to flight. We can resist him with the assurance that when we do, he'll flee. Now, are we assured that when we resist him successfully and he flees, that he'll flee forevermore? Of course not. Remember Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus. At the conclusion of that temptation account, Luke's record says, and the devil departed from him for a season. For a season. That's a clear statement that tells us he didn't leave the Lord alone after that one temptation. But the Lord successfully de uh, defended himself and successfully resisted Satan and was sinless. We're not sinless, but we can still resist Satan. And we have all that we need to do so. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. What does that tell us? First of all, it tells us that man must do his part. That man must fulfill his responsibility in drawing near to God before he can enjoy fellowship and communion with God. Note the order here. Man, then God. Man, you draw near to God, and then God will draw near to you. In other words, the fulfillment of every spiritual promise depends upon man's personal response to the will of God. It depends upon how I respond to the will of God. All his promises are dependent upon that response on my part to his revealed will. And what is it that I'm to do? Cleanse my hands, purify my heart. Now James is writing to Christians here who had obviously encountered some spiritual difficulty. And he refers to them as sinners. He refers to them as being double-minded, and that word double-minded is used only twice any, everywhere in the New Testament, here and back in James 1, verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. As James discussed the matter of asking without doubting and not uh, vacillating, uh, James uses that word for double-minded only twice. That's the only place we see it in Scripture two times, both right here in this epistle. And it simply means a man with two minds or a man with two souls. In other words, he's in conflict with himself. He's unstable. He's wavering in his loyalties. He's undecided in his intentions. He's divided in his interests. He lacks unity of thought. He lacks the singleness of purpose that a Christian should have. He is a spiritual Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And James condemns that kind of double-mindedness. You can't draw near to God with that kind of attitude. And James writing here to members of the Lord's church, thus at one time Christians, but they had fallen so deeply into sin as to be described as sinners. And again, what does that show us about the possibility of a Christian falling into sin and losing his soul? Yes. It can happen. But before man can draw nigh to God or near to God in acceptable worship and service, he has to prepare himself in heart and 
in life. Cleanse your hands, but not just the outward. Yes, you need to be doing the right thing with your hands, as it were, but what is it that's going to prompt you to do the right thing with your hands? What's in your heart, the biblical heart, the mind? That's what will produce the proper use of one's members, physical members, etc. And then verse 9, he tells us something that is the most crucial passage in this section we are studying. Verse 9 is the key passage in this section that we're looking at. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, before man will humble himself before God, before he will submit to God, before he'll make any effort to resist the devil, before he'll draw near to God and subject himself to the spiritual cleansing that James says is absolutely essential, he's got to first recognize the true nature of sin. He's got to see sin for what it really is, that it is ugly that it is repulsive, that it pollutes the soul, corrupts the mind, stains the heart, contaminates the body, renders man unfit to stand in the presence of God's holiness. But until he proceeds to manifest godly sorrow and penitence, until he does that, he's not in a position to accept this admonition that we're studying tonight in verses 6 through 10, thus giving him the victory over the problem of sin that James discussed in verses 1 through 5. He's just not in a position to do it until he's willing to manifest godly sorrow, true and true repentance. Godly sorrow is not repentance, but godly sorrow precedes it, 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us. Godly sorrow works or leads to or produces repentance. He's got to have that godly sorrow and then repent to be in a position to accept what James has said here. And what does he say here? Lament and mourn and weep. Feel wretched and miserable, in other words. Is there any time that God wants people to feel absolutely miserable, as low as you could possibly feel? Yes, there is. There is. When? When you come to the full realization and recognition of what sin has done to your life. And until you do come to that recognition, until all of us do, we're not going to make the necessary changes. James is urging these people here to be conscious of their sinful condition, their wretched state before God, to mourn and lament and weep. In other words, recognize the state that you're in before God that hopefully will lead you not only to grieve over your sins and to manifest godly sorrow, but to do something about it. You've got to turn your laughter, he says, into mourning. Laughter needs to be turned to mourning. Is that a condemnation of all laughter as such? Well, of course not. The Christian life is a life of happiness. It's a life of, of rejoicing. But the laughter under consideration here is that flippant laughter of the careless, unconcerned individual here who's so proud that in the face of the facts, he will not grieve and be remorseful about his condition. Those whose hands are stained with sin, those whose lives are polluted by the corruption of the world, they're really not in any position to laugh or experience joy, are they? 
but many of them continue to laugh with that careless, flippant laughter that is unconcerned about their true spiritual condition. But once they come to that realization, then that should remove all outward signs of joy and laughter from that individual, and that joy needs to turn to gloom. Or as the King James says, or the American Standard says, heaviness, your joy to heaviness, gloom. Joy is the inward condition, the inward condition that we can experience as Christians. But joy is also the inward condition of the sinner. Laughter and mourning primarily is outward in nature. Joy and heaviness or gloom primarily inward in nature. In other words, the disposition of heart. So James is saying here, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Your outward appearance, all that laughter and glee, let that be turned to mourning. And your joy, that inward joy that you should be experiencing rightfully, let that joy that, that you feel within because you don't feel any compunction of conscience about what you're doing, let that inward joy, that disposition of heart, and that outward show of laughter, let it all change, in other words, outwardly and inwardly. Make a complete change so that when you laugh on the outside, you do so from a genuine joy on the inside, not one that is a false joy based upon a false belief, but true joy, true joy that can only be experienced by being in the Lord and by rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. So it may be that he's dealing both with the outward laughter and the inward joy, but you've got joy within, but it's not properly based. Therefore, let that inward joy be turned to gloom. Let that outward laughter be turned to something that people see you mourn about rather than see you laugh about. In other words, experience a complete change. Downcast look, expression, of sorrow or shame. That's what Thayer's lexicon says this idea of heaviness or gloom involves. You know, we see that illustrated so beautifully, don't we, in the case of the publican, remember him in Luke 18? And the Pharisee, on the other hand, by contrast, remember in Luke 18, the publican standing afar off there at the temple would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, while the Pharisee was going through his whole list of how good he was and commending himself. And so these words here in verse 9, this key verse in our section here, these words contrast the loud, unseemly laughter of the pleasure-seeker with the subdued and downcast look of the one who's truly penitent, the one who truly recognizes his undone condition. And there were those who failed to manifest this attitude toward sin. Remember Cain back in Genesis 4? He didn't really manifest that kind of attitude, did he, toward sin? And then you had uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, one and two, initially, they were glorying over the fact that they were in full fellowship with a man who was living with his father's wife. Now, 
uh, to their credit, after they were rebuked for that, they did turn in their attitude, thankfully. You go back to the Old Testament and you see the Israelites who were rebellious. And think about what is said here about them on this occasion by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Couldn't even blush. But then we see examples of those who did manifest the right attitude towards sin when they were faced with it and recognized it. David, after Nathan confronted him and said, You're the man, thou art the man. David was penitent. Peter, after that uh, rooster crowed for the third time, Matthew 26, 75, realized what had happened, what he had done. He went out, the scripture says, and wept bitterly. And he obviously repented. And the prodigal son is a classic example as well, isn't he? He came home and said, Father, I have sinned. These latter ones were examples of those who followed James's ad admonition, if you will, though not from James at the time, long before his time. But James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up. David did that. Peter did that. The prodigal son did that. And the Lord lifted them up and he will lift us up as well. But we're not to exalt ourselves or lift ourselves up. Let the Lord do it as a result of our genuine humility in his sight. In this last verse, verse 10, James urges his readers to demonstrate their penitence by humbling themselves before God. An admonition that simply reminds us that the way up in the Christian life is first down. You don't move up in the Christian life till you first genuinely move down because genuine greatness results from complete surrender and that is one of the greatest needs in our world today tonight if there's someone here who needs to humble himself or herself in the sight of the Lord by obeying the gospel it is that genuine humility that will cause you to do that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted the poor in spirit will logically mourn over their sins if they are genuinely humble, they'll see their undone condition, their dependence upon God, and they'll seek to do something about it. That's what James is telling us here, and that's what the Lord reminded us of in those great Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. How? By expressing your belief in God's only begotten Son, repenting of sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism. There were obviously those of whom we have just read in James's epistle who have been Christians who needed to come home to their first love. If that's your situation tonight, we plead with you to do that. How? By submitting to God, confessing sin that's public in nature as we pray with you and for you to a God who says, still, you humble yourself and let me lift you up. And he'll do just that. If you need to respond, will you come as we stand to sing?